like to invite the children to come on down front for the children's story. I haven't got any stuff to give you today, but come on down anyway. Have a seat. Look up at the screen because we're going to have pictures today. Our theme today is, it's not fair. Have you ever felt that way? It's not fair. I know if you have siblings, brother or sister, sometimes you look and see the size of piece of pie they got and the size you got. And if yours is smaller, you think to yourself, it's not fair. I think this big goldfish is thinking, I need to be in that big bowl. It's not fair. Sometimes life brings us challenges and it's like this. We get an assignment and we feel like this. Next, all right. You're the guy on the right, that's you. And you're up against something and that's Mike Tyson over there on the left. And what do you say? It's not fair. Right? That's just not fair. How about the next one? Let's see the next one. Oh, you're in a race. You get the middle lane. And you go, what's not fair? It's just not fair. Let's see the next one. Oh, here's another one. Sumo wrestling. Do you know how sumo wrestling works, by the way? It's done in a circle. And the whole goal is for the one guy to push the other guy out of the ring. So they are usually they're really big guys and whatnot, and I don't think that little guys got much of a chance, do you? It's not fair, we think sometimes. How about another one here? Oh, yeah, here's a primitive spelling bee. Cave, C-A-V-E, cave. And that's you, and you're thinking, oh, sure, I'll probably get Australopithecus. Good luck with that. Some hard word that's really hard to spell, and you think, that's not fair. How about the next one? You're in a race and you get the tricycle and the other guy gets a 67 Dodge Charger with a 440 cubic inch Hemi. <laughs> and what do you say? It's not fair. Right, how about a boat race? Let's have a boat race. That's a jet boat and you get the ducky. It's not fair, right? You get to go, you have a, you, you get to go on Jeopardy, and you get a helper, and the other guy gets Einstein, and you get Mortimer Snurd. And you think it's not fair. All right, here it is, kids. The lesson for today is life is unfair. Insert proof, for proof, insert one dollar, get nothing in return. That's life. Now, this does have a point to it. Way back in the book of Genesis, Abraham went to the help of his nephew Lot. And he rescued him because he'd been captured by the Amalekites. They were the really bad guys in the old days, the really bad guys. They'd, they'd, they'd taken Lot and his whole family, and they were, and so Abram got some of his men together, and they went out and they rescued Lot, and that cost a lot of effort on Abram's part. And afterwards, he didn't get paid, basically. He couldn't take any money from the people that Lot was with because they weren't very nice people. So he'd gone to all this trouble and all this effort, risked his life to successfully rescue Lot and all of his family, and he got nothing for it, nothing. And you would think he would say, what? It's not fair, right? But in Genesis 15, we read this, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, and he said, Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So boys and girls, remember this. Life will be unfair to you. 
But if you have Jesus in your heart, you have everything you need, and he makes up the difference. When life is unfair, Jesus will protect you, and he will provide for you. You remember that. If Jesus is your friend, he's always fair. Okay, you can take your seats again. Thanks for coming up. Well, we continue this morning in our studies in the book of Acts. We're looking at a really quite a long passage here, uh, which we're not going to read every verse, but it starts in chapter 22, at the end of the chapter, verse 30, and then goes on into chapter 23, all the way down to verse 35. As Paul has been rescued from the mob, in Jerusalem, outside of the temple, and uh, kept overnight by the tribune, and now he's brought before the Sanhedrin in this passage. But our real scripture for today that is illustrated by this passage is in the Gospel of John, in this 13th chapter and the 33rd verse. Speaking of life not being fair, we have this kind of Christianity today that's called the health and wealth gospel and that promises you prosperity if you will come to Jesus. But that's not what Jesus promised. He promised that in this world we will have trouble. But we were to take courage because the victory was his and he has overcome the world. Actually, I think that's in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. This is his promise to us. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The Apostle Paul is a living and breathing example of this truth because wherever he went and preached the gospel and did exactly what Jesus told him to do, he ran into tribulation. Beatings and, and whippings and floggings and even one stoning. He had trouble. But Jesus delivered him from all of that and gave him peace. We are not promised prosperity. We are promised persecution. Who would ever want to become a Christian with that promise? Because what do we get with persecution? We get deliverance from this world and its evils, and we get the promise and gift of eternal life. But Jesus never said it was going to be easy. He said it was going to be difficult. So we have Paul here having his usual difficult problems. And back now in the book of Acts, if you want to turn to that in verse 30, we have Paul being sent to the Sanhedrin. The next day, in verse 30 of 22, we read, Desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, that is Claudius Lysias, the, the uh, tribune, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set them before him. Now, Paul has been in the hands of a mob and rescued by the Roman soldiers, kept overnight in jail, basically, and now brought to the Sanhedrin. And I, I can't... I can't even imagine 
the feelings that he had. To be at the victim of a mob is not a good feeling. Everything's out of control. You don't know what's going to happen next. Your life is in danger. They're pulling you one way, kicking you, punching you, probably rolling around on the ground, barely delivered from that, and now he's going to go before a court of law where you would expect there to be an opportunity to explain yourself, where there would be rational people who wouldn't abuse you, but what happens? Paul begins his address by claiming that he has a good conscience. I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Because this was the truth. Paul was living according to what he believed the gospel said. He was obedient to Jesus, and he believed that the gospel was a fulfillment of the Old Testament law, so that he was living according to the law in a way that the unbelieving Jews weren't. He had a solid foundation for this claim for a good conscience. This is very different from what many people claim today. Many people will claim, well, you believe this, these things that are in the Bible, but I have my own beliefs. I don't need the Bible. I don't need God because I have my own conscience. So I want to quote to you a, an idea about that idea of having your own conscience. There was a preacher was talking. There was a sermon he gave. He said, every man's conscience is vile and depraved. You cannot depend on it to be your guide because it's you who must keep it satisfied. Who am I quoting there, by the way? Anybody know? Bob Dylan, of course, another Minnesotan. In his album back in the 90s called Oh Mercy, it's for the song uh, Man in a Long Black Coat, but it's true. Bob wrote something there that's true. It's absolutely right. He was quoting some preacher that he had heard you cannot depend on your conscience to be your guide because you're vile and depraved. It's pretty easy to satisfy your own rules. Paul was not claiming a good conscience on the basis of his idea of right and wrong. He was claiming a good conscience on the basis of the Word of God. On the basis of the Gospel, he had a clear conscience both before God and before men. That's a nice way to start out in a court of law. I haven't done anything wrong According to the scriptures, according to the law, I'm doing the best I can to live by that, by God's grace. And then what happens in the second verse? The high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by to strike him on the mouth. Now, Paul had just been beaten up by a mob the day before. Now he's in a court of law where he's expecting fair treatment. And what does he get? Slugged in the mouth. This gets a reaction from him. Next verse, Paul said to the high priest, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? Yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. The high priest had gone contrary to the law of God. He violated, he turns this courtroom into a mob, basically, by his actions. And Paul was incensed by this. But he didn't realize he was addressing the high priest. So it's pointed out to him that he has now insulted God's high priest. And so he immediately apologizes for what he's done because that also was not according to the law. The Sanhedrin was indeed a whitewashed wall. It looked good on the outside, but inside it was corrupt. 
I don't know if you've ever tried to do home repairs that way, but I've been a homeowner, and there's been times when I put a coat of paint over something that really needed to be replaced. So I could put off the repairs for a little bit longer, but you know, it really doesn't fix anything, does it? This particular part, by the way, uh, besides Detroit stories and Philadelphia stories, I have car stories. I once owned a 1972 Mercedes 280 SE. I bought it in about 1988, so it was quite old, but it was beautiful. Um, it was maroon, and there wasn't a spot of, of rust on the outside as far as you could see, a beautiful leather interior, Blaupunk stereo. And that car was built to cruise on the Autobahn at 130 miles an hour. It was a wonderful car to take a trip in, except the muffler kept falling off. And crawling underneath it, I noticed some problems, and I got in the back seat one time, and I pulled up the carpeting, and you know what I saw? I saw the ground. It was completely rusted out underneath. I went out one morning, and the car was leaning on one side, and I opened up the hood, and the shock absorber had gone through the metal. There it was almost touching the hood. The rust had just given way. So it was like this whitewashed wall. It had a good coat of paint on it, but it was totally decayed. It would cost a lot of money to get that fixed, and I, I got it repaired as best I could, and I got rid of it. It was uh, the whitewashed wall version of the automobile. Maybe you own something like that. And Paul is just upset. But this is a group of, of the leaders of Israel, the elders of Israel, supposedly men of wisdom, and, and, and they're not wise, and they're totally corrupt, and he strikes out at them. But, but he apologizes. Oh, you're not supposed to speak ill of the leaders of your people. Something that we should bear in mind. I guess it's hard not to sometimes, but, you know, let's, uh, let's just trust the Lord to get us out of this. Now, what's he going to do? He's obviously not in a situation that is unbiased. But something occurs to him. About half of this group are like him in that they're Pharisees. He was raised as a Pharisee in the strictest group of the Jewish people, the strictest sect of the religion, and so he makes his appeal based on that. I'm a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. It's respect, it's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So he's aware of something here. Half of this group are Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels or spirits. They're, they're very materialistic in their approach to their religion, very pragmatic in their approach. The other half are Pharisees. They do believe in angels and in demons, and they believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul is saying, look, I'm one of you guys. And what happens immediately, basically, he's sown the seeds of a riot. And indeed, that's exactly what they begin arguing. The Pharisees speak up for him. You know, maybe an angel has spoken to him. The Sadducees don't agree with that. They get, the argument gets very, very heated. Uh, a lot like our U.S. Congress a couple of weeks ago. They're screaming and yelling. It actually comes to blows. And now Paul is being pulled on the one hand by the Pharisees and on the other hand by the Sadducees, apparently because the Roman soldiers are worried they're going to rip him apart. It's like a tug-of-war with Paul as the rope. Not a good place to be. Once again, it's Romans to the rescue. By the way, pay attention to the Romans in the book of Acts. I thought they were the bad guys. It turns out they're very often the good guys. And once again, the law enforcement officers have to step in and, and do what people really aren't interested in them doing, which is put an end to this rioting that's going on. So Paul gets lifted away from this, this uh, strife that's happening right in basically the Supreme Court of the Jews. 
Romans to the rescue. Then Paul has a vision as he's taken away and, and uh, overnight, and Jesus appears to him and gives him a new assignment. And the assignment is that Paul is going to be sent to Rome because you must testify before me in Rome. Now this is interesting because this is Paul's intent. If you look at the end of the first letter of the Corinthians, he's writing to them saying, I, I'm going to be going to Jerusalem, carrying out this mission of mercy, uh, bringing some funds because of the, of the uh, problems that they've had there, and then I'm going to be on my way back and I'll stop to see you again on my way to Rome. And that was his plan. And so Jesus is saying, yep, you're going to Rome, all right. How long did it take him to get there after this? It was at least two years. So this is just the practical application. Sometimes God has a plan for us, and it's exactly what we'd hope for. It just doesn't happen when we'd hope for it. And what do we say then? That's not fair. <laughs> See? We can't wait. I, I'm a very impatient person. I like, you know, I don't like waiting in lines. I like it right now. But that's not the way it's always going to be. In God's timing, in God's good time, he's going to get to Rome. Jesus doesn't tell him he's going to get there the next week. He doesn't tell him about the two years of imprisonment that await him. He just says, you're going to Rome. You need to be in Rome and bear testimony to me there. So God's plan will be taking place. We just don't know when. Even so, we say, come, Lord Jesus, may it be soon. The next thing that happens in this chapter, verses 12 to 24, and I won't go through the whole thing, but if you're familiar with it, there's a murderous plot that is hatched against Paul. So a, a group of the, of the Jews bind themselves not neither to eat nor drink until they put Paul to death. There are about 40 that came up with this plot, and they swore, I wonder whatever happened to them since they were unsuccessful. But that's what they bound themselves, not to taste food till we have killed Paul. Fortunately for Paul, he's got this little nephew who's eavesdropping and hears this, and who goes to a centurion and tells, spills this story about him, and the centurion is sympathetic. Once again, notice the Romans are the good guys here. Another centurion who's a good guy, they, they go to the, the, the tribune, who we learn later is named Claudius Lysias, and he's sympathetic. And he's got a responsibility to protect this prisoner. And so Paul, he decides to move Paul along and get him away from Jerusalem, get him, get him to another venue where his case can be observed. And all it takes is an eavesdropping nephew, a sympathetic centurion, a sympathetic tribune, and 470 soldiers. God will do whatever needs to be done to take care of his own. And so Paul has moved on to Caesarea Philippi, in the safety of the custody of Rome, protected. The murderous plot is foiled. So observe this, but what we have seen so far. The preaching of the gospel, which is what Paul was doing in Jerusalem, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is going to win hearts and change lives. This is going to create opposition. People are going to be disturbed by these changed lives and these changed hearts. These changed lives and hearts will divide families, households, divide communities, disrupt the economy, as happened in Ephesus. 
It will provoke violent opposition, all the while delivering people from hell, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. This is why in the world you will have trouble. The gospel of peace is a disruptive force in the world. That which makes peace between us and God and us and our brothers and sisters also creates enemies in opposition because the forces of darkness will come against that gospel. And Paul, in fact, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, the epistle that was written at the end of his life, he tells Timothy, everyone who tries to live a godly life as a Christian will be persecuted. Paul knew that from his own experience. So I'm encouraging you to seek out persecution. I am. By being obedient, by being a light in the darkness. You know, life really isn't any fun unless you've got some opposition, right? Look at Paul's life. He had a very interesting life. And God used him in a powerful way, but he didn't make friends everywhere he went. He made converts wherever he went. He made brothers and sisters in Christ wherever he went. He also made bitter enemies wherever he went. Not that he was setting out to do that, but it just happened because he stood up for the truth. He shared the light, and those who believed the lie and were in the darkness had to oppose him. Another thing we observe in this passage is that God has many servants. There's a verse in the Psalms, I think in Psalm 119, for all things are thy servants. All things are God's servants, including unwitting servants, including enemies of the gospel who become God's servants. Isn't that interesting here? Even those who really had no, no cause to support Paul ended up supporting him and helping him. Even our enemies can be made to serve God. This is what Jesus promises us. That we will be absurdly happy, completely fearless, and constantly in trouble. Doesn't it sound like fun? I don't know, why would we want to live any other way than to be absurdly happy and completely fearless, even if it means we're constantly in trouble? If you're in trouble for the right reason, it's a blessing. And what you begin to see is how God is at work in every circumstance. Everything ultimately is used for his purpose. That's why Paul could write in Romans 8, God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And boy, that describes the Apostle Paul to a T. Now I want to close this service, this sermon, with just a description of the opposition. Because how we take a narrative passage like this, a case study like this, and try to get some benefit out of it, is to see how it applies to us. This is very important. We need some application. And we had four groups of people that were in opposition to the Apostle Paul here, that were part of the Sanhedrin, part of the Jewish opposition to Christianity. And I want to maintain that we have the same types of enemies today that we're facing. So let's be aware of that, and let's talk a little bit about what to do about it. The first group of the Sadducees, these were the wealthy aristocrats who were in charge of the Sanhedrin. 
they were very materialistic people. They measured God's blessing by how much money you had. Success in life was their measure. They deemed personal holiness to be a little bit naive. You know, don't try too hard. Just count how much you got in the bank and don't worry about how you got it. They denied the possibility of the, of the supernatural. So they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in angels or in demons. It was materialism, literally. It was, life was only about what you could see, what you could feel, what you could touch, taste, what you could hear. It's just this material world. That's what it's all about. It, it's kind of contrary to the way we think about uh, liberals and conservatives today, but they were actually considered the most conservative group. Their idea of interpreting Scripture was certain passages were taken very, very literally, and other passages were ignored. But that's how they got to that. They believed that they were getting this uh, position of theirs on a biblical basis. They courted the favor of Rome. They were hoping to make a place for their own little political uh, group by giving in to some of the Romans. And essentially, their approach to Scripture was to take away from it. They only used those parts of it that agreed with their materialistic approach. Now, who do we have in the world today that opposes the gospel that's like this? I, I think of our, our political betters, our, our national rulers who adopt a, a veneer of Christianity. Uh, by the way, you know that the president of the United States is preaching this morning in Atlanta, Georgia at Martin Luther King Jr.'s church. I remember attending a prayer service one time in the city of Detroit, a citywide prayer service. And it was a very interesting prayer service because the only prayer that was offered was to say grace before we ate. And the main speaker who went on as a gas bag of a politician who went on for 45 minutes was a county, Wayne County chairman who was one of, one of the most corrupt individuals in the city of Detroit politically. And that was a Christian prayer breakfast. There are people who adopt these stances politically because it's what's this thin veneer of Christianity on top of their highly materialistic approach. They aren't interested in the supernatural. They aren't interested in life eternal. They're not part of the light. They're part of the dark darkness. They compromise with the world. They're amoral, maybe more than immoral. We have such people today? Of course we do. We have our modern-day Sadducees, the wealthy, the powerful, the materialistic, those who pretend to a kind of Christianity but who really don't believe anything supernatural. Then there were the Pharisees. Now, in contrast to the Sadducees who detracted from Scripture, they added to Scripture. They were extremely legalistic. They believed that you could be good enough to earn your own salvation. And they also are enemies of the gospel. Do we have such people today? Well, I think what we have today are a little different from the religious Pharisees of the New Testament era. We have secular Pharisees today. We have people who are constantly making up new lists of words that you can't use. I just uh, saw one of these lists, and one of the words that you can't use because it might be a trigger word that offends some people is the word American. There are all kinds of things. Rules, don't do this, don't do that, lest you offend somebody. Does this sound familiar? 
legalistic, virtue signaling. Um, a few years ago, I saw a picture of the back end of a brand new Toyota Prius covered with bumper stickers, you know, coexist and save the whales and all this. And it's sort of a parody, right? So when I bought my, my Toyota Camry hybrid, I thought, that boy, I hope people don't think I'm one of those people. Honestly, all I wanted was the 40 miles per gallon because Joe Biden was becoming president, and I knew gas was going to $4 a gallon. Same. So I told Pat, I'm going to get a bumper sticker that says, I'd rather be driving a Shelby Cobra. Some of you know what that means, but anyway. The Pharisees that we have today are the virtue signalers, the adopters of, of well, let's say, the, the followers of... Uh, let's avoid giving offense, you know, the, the coexist people. I, I don't know if they don't get the fact that there's some people that don't want to coexist with Christians. They want us all dead. No, we can, somehow we can all get along. It's just, and of course there are also religious Pharisees too who are enemies of the gospel because of their legalism. They add to the gospel the whole list of rules and things that you need to do and you know, foods that you can't eat, and so on, and et cetera, et cetera. You know, beef is bad because cows emit gases, and so on. By the way, what do they think are going to happen to all these cows if we don't eat them? That disturbs me. I don't get it. But they get it. This is their approach to life. Make up some rules, add rules, make sure you live by them, and then you can feel like a good person. These are the people who have the cancel culture. If you violate their rules, they want to get rid of you. They have no problem eliminating people's jobs, taking people's livelihoods away from them because their rules have been violated. We have these people as enemies of the gospel. How do we approach these people? I don't know any other way, really, honestly, than to show them the love of Christ, to show them that Jesus really does make a difference, to show them that it's grace that saves, not our works. How do we reach the, the, the Sadducees who are materialistic by demonstrating to them the supernatural power of God to change lives, including our own life? Nothing is going to get through to them but the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't convince them, but God might be able to convince them. Another party that was opposing Paul back in those days were the scribes, who were very often Pharisees, and I just like to think of them as sort of hyper-Pharisees in some ways, but these are the people who actually created the fence and the new traditions around the law, which the Pharisees then enforced. So it's pretty much the same thing. These are the politically correct rule makers, uh, the, the, the faculty committees at, at universities and colleges that are coming up with all the new rules and so on. They certainly have them. And, and the one thing, they want to include everybody, but the one people they want to include out are the born-again believers in Jesus. We don't want any of this Jesus stuff on the campus, but everything else can come in. That kind of thing. These are the scribes. How do we, how do we deal with that? We don't give in to the ideologues who promulgate new rules who forbidden words, critical race theory, actions like this, stay away, they're saying. But we say, no, we're here. You're going to have to deal with us. We're going to claim our rights to be on campus. We're going to claim our rights to be in the public arena with the gospel of Jesus Christ, regardless of what you say. That's going to lead to persecution, folks. 
But that's our mandate from the gospel. One final group in those days were the Herodians. They were the political supporters of Rome, and uh, unlike the Sadducees who detracted from Scripture and the Pharisees and the scribes who added to Scripture, they just ignored Scripture. They had nothing to do with it, didn't care anything at all about Scripture. They were uh, interested in just the political Jewishness, the nation, and they wanted Jewish autonomy, and they wanted to get it through compromise with Rome. We have today people who really just want to rewrite Scripture. They want to ignore its edicts, its rules, and conform to the world. That's their message. You know, we've been told by some of our political leaders that we have to change the way we think if we're going to get along in this world. And how do we respond to that? We don't change the way we think. We conform ourselves more and more and more to Jesus Christ and to his word, and we stand up for that for that in the public sector. So the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Herodians, they're not around today by name, but they are still around today by nature. They were vociferous. They were vicious in their opposition to the gospel, and they took out their wrath on the Apostle Paul. They took out their wrath against Christians wherever they could. And what happened? They were successful, right, in stopping Paul from preaching, right? They eliminated Christians wherever they were until Christianity ceased to exist, right? Wrong. The more you tried to shut Paul up, the more he talked. I read a description of Paul once that said, if you put Paul, you locked up Paul in a barrel, he'd preach the gospel out the bunghole. He wouldn't give up. He never did give up. When they kept him in prison, what did he do? He wrote letters that gave us a lot of our New Testament. It's still around today, over 2,000 years later. Amazing, huh? Did they stamp out Christianity? No. They were sometimes successful in driving Christians out and away from wherever they were, and then wherever they went, they won more converts, and so it was just like spreading a fire. And the fire spread, and we're still enjoying the warmth of that fire today. My encouragement to you, and to myself, is don't be afraid. In the world, you will have trouble, Jesus said. He also said, but take courage. The victory is mine. I have overcome the world. Let's go get him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, just as you gave to the Apostle Paul a mission and told him he was going to go to Rome and there bear witness at the center of the kingdom. You've given us a mission as well. And maybe it's not to go to Rome or to Washington or even to Lincoln. Maybe it's just to go to Hastings. But you've given us a mission and a message, and it's a message, a message that disturbs the powers of darkness. And there may be a tendency to try to soften it or not to be so bold. But we see the example of the apostles, of Paul himself, they never gave up. They never gave in. Lord, let us follow that example. Let us be absurdly happy, completely fearless, even if it means we're constantly in trouble. We ask these favors in Jesus' name. Amen.
please stand and join us.
I remind you there is food waiting downstairs, so please join us for our fellowship downstairs. I'm going to ask a blessing on that, and then we'll do the benediction. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gracious provision for us. We thank you for those who have been downstairs getting everything ready for us to eat. Bless our time of fellowship. We pray that you would indeed continue to be present with us. We would sense that presence and bless the food to our bodies and us to your service. And now may God himself, the God of peace, make you holy in every part and keep you sound in spirit, mind, and body without fault when our Lord Jesus Christ comes. He who calls you is to be trusted. He will do it. Amen.